The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome Mr. Patrick Woodall, who is a research director and senior policy advocate for Food and Water Watch. This organization is based in Washington, D.C., where Patrick has been a public policy analyst, researcher, and advocate on economic justice issues. Patrick, you are an expert in GYPSA, Grain Inspection Packers and Stockyards Administration, and that's why I wanted to welcome you today. Thank you for joining me. It's great to be here today. Thank you. Why should people who eat meat know about GYPSA? Well, they should know about it because it's the agency inside the U.S. Department of Agriculture which ensures that the marketplace that brings uh, livestock from uh, family farms to supermarkets is fair and uh, is competitive. It is based on a century-old law, the 1921 Packers and Stockyards Act, which is designed to make sure that the treatment of family farmers is fair and that the big meat packers don't run roughshod over our family farm neighbors. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned family farm-based meat in the grocery store because I have to tell you it's very hard to find. In fact, because I'm a dietitian and I believe that the grass-based livestock is more healthy for us, I typically tell my clients and patients to choose grass-fed meat, preferably from family farmers, preferably from organic family farmers, but our choices in the supermarket do not support that advice. Why is that? Well, the the real reason is because of the meat packer monopolies. So the the biggest four meat packers control 80% of the the cattle that are slaughtered in the U.S. So that means four out of five cows are slaughtered by the biggest companies, and uh, they control what you see in the supermarket. So although, and this is true for hogs, two out of three hogs are slaughtered by the biggest four companies and three out of five chickens are slaughtered by the biggest four companies. And this kind of control of the marketplace means that when you go into the supermarket, although there may be a range of brands out there in the in the meat counter, really they're very few because they're owned by all these little brands are owned by just a, a tiny number of firms. Obviously in, in Missouri the the big boy is Smithfield who controls a large number of the operations there, including premium standard farms. And what this means is that they control what gets slaughtered and what gets delivered to the supermarket. They control the choices that we have, and they control the prices that we pay. But they also control what farmers receive for their livestock. And what they've managed to do is squeeze out the smaller farms, squeeze out the independent farms, and kind of force producers, force livestock producers to kind of jump through the hoops in order to sell their animals. And this kind of dominance by the largest companies has made it almost impossible for family farmers to survive. This is especially true of 
hog farmers, and people in Missouri know this, the number of hog farms really has plummeted over the last 30 years, and that's because of this stranglehold on the marketplace. And the the reason that we are advocating for a new rejuvenated enforcement to make sure that the marketplace is fair, and that's included in these new fair livestock rules that are being considered right now, is to make sure that more farmers get a better price for their livestock and a fairer access to the market, and that's going to help consumers in the meat case. Now, is it the farm bill that this legislation is is a piece of, or how do we speak to our legislators when we want to talk about this topic? So their rule, about a year ago, last June, the USDA put forward proposed rules under the GIPSA administration that would address things that were in the 2008 Farm Bill. So the 2008 Farm Bill happened three years ago. A year ago, rules were put forward that directed uh, USDA to start to consider the kind of fairness in the marketplace and to make sure that farmers and were not operating under unfair contracts. And uh, those rules have been hanging out there for a year. They collected 60,000 comments from the public, almost all of which were in support of fair rules for farmers, but they haven't been finalized yet. So when you contact your legislators, and right now is a good time to do it, because right now the House Appropriations Committee just passed a, a measure that would prevent USDA from implementing these rules. And so we're fighting to make sure that these fair rules get put forwards, but the reality is that the the meat packers have uh, donated a lot of money to members of Congress, and they don't want uh, farmers to get a fair shake. They want to have the squeeze on both ends. They want to put the squeeze on farmers and give them very low prices and force them to operate under unfair contracts, and they want to have a monopoly on the supermarket aisle. Who are our allies in this? I mean, granted, there's a lot of money coming from the meat producers, the big boys, But as a consumer, who else can I join with to maybe see justice come into play? Well, I think there are real advocates across the board in the farm community and in rural America, and there are consumer advocates all over the place, including groups like Food and Water Watch. But we work with lots of national and local groups, including the National Farmers Union, the National Family Farm Coalition, and in Missouri, the Missouri Rural Crisis Center, all of whom advocate strongly on this. There are other groups that work primarily on cattle issues, including RCAF USA and the Western Organization of Resource Councils, all of whom have been working together for decades to ensure that uh, farmers get a fair price and a fair shake and consumers get the kind of choices that they want in the supermarket. What does this legislation look like in rural America? Well, the way that it would work in rural America actually is is extremely important. So today, the way that it works is that meat packers offer special sweetheart deals to the biggest the biggest factory farms that are delivering livestock in bulk and under contract. But farmers that are delivering smaller amounts of livestock, equal quality, equal number, and an equal point of delivery might not get the same price. And let me give you a great example. So if 10 smaller farmers band together and fill up a semi-truck full of hogs and they deliver it to the slaughterhouse, they may get a lower price for those hogs than uh, a truck that came from a factory farm. Now, this seems unfair, 
that they would get a worse price. But under the current rules, there is no protection for this kind of sweetheart deal, which which under the kind of classic rubric of USDA is called an undue preference, a, an unfair treatment of one set of farmers over another. And th- these new rules would address that. They would ensure that all farmers get the same price for the same quality, same number, same type, and same point of delivery of livestock as anybody else. And it would eliminate the kind of sweetheart deals that are being made between the meat packers and the biggest feedlots, the meat packers and the very biggest corporate hog farms, the meat packers and the largest chicken operations. And this is truly beneficial to consumers and to farmers. Now, do the meat packers also own some of these farms? You know, is there this vertical integration going on here where there are less independent people making decisions? Well, this is kind of, there's a spectrum out there. In the poultry industry, the integrators, the poultry companies, own the chicks and they deliver them to farmers who raise them under contract. Those contracts are often extremely unfair and put extreme burdens on the farmers, and they are beholden to these companies to deliver new chicks after the birds are raised. So it takes, you know, five to seven weeks to raise a chicken, and if you're being paid on the contract, you need to make sure that you're getting getting another flock of birds after that. And so these farmers are under extremely integrated contracts from the point of when they get the chicks to when they're delivered. And so they have a very seriously integrated system. These farmers are essentially serfs to the big chicken companies. On the other end of the spectrum are cattle producers, some of whom are delivering under under contracts that can be pretty egregious, but many of whom sell in auction yards where buyers bid for the cattle. And in in the middle are are hogs, some of whom are raised almost like almost like chickens under contract where the farmers don't own the pigs. And some farmers sell their hogs a smaller number today than even 10 years ago in auction yards. And then a third area, or, or another area, I guess, is some companies own their own animals. So some of the biggest uh, meat packers have giant feedlots of their own where they have a control over a large number of cattle or hogs. And this ownership allows them to effectively manipulate the market. So if the price of hogs on the open market is very high, then a company that owns is raising hogs of their own can slaughter their own hogs while the price is high. And if the price of hogs on the open market is low, they can enter into the auction market and buy hogs at a low price. And this effectively allows the market for hogs and for cattle to be manipulated by the packer ownership. And this, you know, obviously has real implications for uh, small farmers, it makes them difficult to get into the marketplace because it, oftentimes there are no bidders in these auctions, and it makes it harder for them. They're price takers, so if they essentially have to take whatever the meat packers offer, and it makes it difficult for them to earn a decent living. And what this does over time is it forces producers to effectively get big or get out. You have to add more hogs. You have to add more cattle. And so what we've seen over time is that the number of cattle producers, the number of hog producers has really fallen dramatically as concentration in the marketplace has gone up. Hmm. Do supermarkets have a, a role in this or the Grocery Manufacturers Association or 
are they our allies in making a more just food system, or are they not involved in this? Well, I think obviously they're involved in this situation. So the biggest supermarkets buy from the biggest meat packers, and they in turn offer sweetheart deals to the biggest meat packers, and this kind of has a downward pressure on the price that uh, farmers get for their livestock across the board. So there, there are kind of two points in the in the chain where there are just a few companies, right? The top uh, supermarkets control more than half of the supermarket dollars, and the top meat packers control 80% of the purchased cattle and two-thirds of the purchased hogs. And what those two kind of independent monopolies that work in conjunction, what they do is uh, effectively put pressure on consumers by controlling the prices, right? So if if a big supermarket chain only buys from one meat packer, then the choices that we see in the supermarket are very limited. We don't get to see the grass-fed beef or the free-range beef or, or the, the free-range hogs that we might want because the, sale, the meat case is completely controlled by one or two big firms. And for farmers, they're getting terrible prices because it's very difficult for them to get into the supermarket. There's no way in for them to, uh, to, to distribute their livestock. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Patrick Woodall. He is a research director and senior policy advocate for Food and Water Watch. Patrick has been a public policy analyst, researcher, and advocate on economic justice issues in Washington, D.C. for nearly two decades. Well, Patrick, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm listening to your explanation of what's going on and what keeps the kind of food out of the supermarket that I really want, and I'm wondering... A couple of things. Number one, I thought monopolies were illegal, and I'm wondering how this concentration and failure to to prevent these monopolies from happening, what happened in our political history to lead us to this? Well, I think as as most consumers would know, everyone knows, there are fewer and fewer companies offering fewer and fewer brands to, to consumers and although there's an appearance of choice out on the marketplace, uh, really this choice is constrained by the number of companies that offer it to us. Uh, I think if you stand in the middle of the supermarket, it will seem like there's a just panoply of choices for potato chips or crackers or mm-hmm. anything like that. But the reality is that these choices are sold to us by just a tiny number of companies that dominate the what's on the supermarket shelf. This is because of a long-standing kind of just non-enforcement of our antitrust laws. Mm. And and this has been, for the past several decades, three decades, more than that, of just basically non-enforcement that have allowed mergers to occur, that have, that have slowly concentrated economic power in the hands of fewer and fewer companies, and that this concentration of power has been especially pronounced in agriculture, even more so than in other sectors. In fact, in 2010, the Justice Department and USDA held a series of five workshops across the country to examine the impact of economic concentration on agriculture and on consumers. And at each of these, it seems like an extremely arcane topic. Who would want to go and discuss antitrust issues related to agriculture? It seems very weird and unusual, but at every one of these workshops, Hundreds and hundreds of people turned out to actually hear what was going on. I talked to farmers in Iowa who said, we came to this 
hoping, that, thinking that we'd be one of 20 people at the same meeting, but there were almost a 1,000 people at the first hearing in Iowa. At the, at the hearing in Colorado on, on the cattle industry, there were almost 3,000 people there. And the reason is because this issue is very important. Because of this erosion of antitrust enforcement, there's been efforts by family farm groups uh, like the ones I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. in the show, to really improve enforcement and to rejuvenate the the necessary antitrust enforcement at USDA to make sure that farmers got a fair shake in the marketplace. And really, that was the reason why a large band of farm and consumer groups worked together to put new teeth into the antitrust enforcement in the 2008 Farm Bill. And that effort prevailed. For the first time, there was a livestock title in the Farm Bill that addressed many of these issues. It did several things that people will recognize from their trips to the supermarket. One, it added country of origin labeling to uh, produce and to steaks and uh, muscle cuts of meat like pork chops for the first time. So we know where our food is coming from, something that consumers desperately want and farmers recognize as a huge value to them because people want to buy American and they like knowing where their food comes from. A second thing that it did was it made it easier for smaller meat packing plants to ship across state lines, which is something that we've been advocating so that people that are in uh, Nebraska can ship across the state line to Iowa, and this allows more smaller companies, smaller meat packers, to actually get into the marketplace better. And then the third thing was this series of fair livestock rules, a, a farmer's bill of rights, if you will, that are encapsulated in the, the GYPSA rule, which are currently pending. And these rules would do a number of things, including the, the example I gave about the trucks and the hogs, but also would ensure that contracts are fair for farmers so that the companies, the chicken companies cannot retaliate against farmers who stand up for their rights. It ensures that people are getting a fair price and are not forced to compete against others who are getting sweetheart deals. And these rules will really improve things. The problem is they've been languishing for almost a year, and we're really working to re-energize this fight to make sure that USDA finalizes these rules promptly. In June 22nd, there will be a national call-in day to the White House to urge President Obama to actually keep his campaign pledge, which was to ensure that uh, livestock producers would have fair markets for their livestock. And we really encourage people to call in and demand that the president keep his word and finalize these fair livestock rules in the GYPSA rule. So USDA is responsible for enforcing the rules. Is that right? Well, what the 2008 Farm Bill did was it directed USDA to write essentially definitions for what is unfair. And these had been languishing. These definitions were actually directed in the 1921 Act, but had never actually been written down. Wow. USDA did this. They uh, have promulgated a pretty good rule, and we are very supportive of this, and we, along with lots of uh, family farm groups, have been pushing for USDA to to write a good rule, and USDA has been fairly strong on this, but they're under tremendous pressure from the meatpacking industry not to finalize this rule. There have been efforts to slow down the process. They've been trying to prevent the rule from going forward, and this week the uh, House Appropriations Subcommittee on Agriculture 
directed USDA not to finalize the rule in the uh, current appropriations process. So USDA needs to really stick to its guns and finalize the rule, and Congress really should let USDA do its job and to let USDA follow the 60,000 groups that have uh, and people that have filed comments, most of whom have been supportive of the rule. And that's what we saw last year in these antitrust workshops was that farmers and consumers across the country support a fair system where farmers can get a a decent price and consumers can get the choice that they want. Okay, so it sounds like this is definitely a consumer issue. It's a public health issue. Have we also brought in food safety groups? Because I think that this is this is also a food safety issue. We know that when, when we have 400,000 pounds of beef recalled, that's not going to happen when beef is coming from a small family farm that's that's raising their cattle on grass, for example. You're just not going to have the enormity of food safety issues when we make the system a little bit smaller. Would you agree with that? Well, we, we certainly would agree with that, and we're we're also food safety advocates, and so we definitely would agree with that. I mean, I think last summer was the real tipping point for kind of awareness on this, and we had almost half a billion eggs recalled from right. just a, just one one or two companies. And the reason is because, you know, when you have just these few giant facilities or a few a few companies that own a few giant facilities, a tiny problem or even a big problem in one ends up on everybody's kitchen table pretty quickly. Exactly. And part of this is because that the marketplace is just so uh, – the stranglehold on the marketplace is so intense that new entrants, new companies, it's almost impossible for them to muscle their way in, to elbow their way into supermarket shelves. And so when there is a problem, it ends up everywhere. And we think that it is in, in part a, a real has a real impact on food safety and uh, contributes to the widespread large-scale recalls that we've seen over the past past decade. Mm-hmm. The other group that I think would be very interested in this legislation would be those that are involved with community development, rural community development in particular, because when small farmers can't make it, uh, there goes your community, right? That's absolutely true. I mean, we've, in the past 20 years, we've lost almost 90% of the hog farms in the U.S., 90%. Mm-hmm. And this is in largely because of the, the strength of the companies and the leverage they put on farmers. And it's been forcing farmers to make choices to either get big or get out, and many have sadly gotten out. Mm-hmm. But it also, it's the farms, but it's not just the farms. It's the, the place where they buy their feed. It's the place where they buy their equipment. It's the, the place where they uh, get help on their taxes. It is all the local businesses that supply them and provide them with services but it's not just that. It's the small meat packing plants that used to be all over the Midwest that are largely gone right now. And the jobs in those plants and the services and suppliers that help to provide those plants. It's about a vibrant rural economy where there are jobs related to agriculture that create a strong network that keep Main Street alive. And when you have the big companies that are far, far away, their headquarters are far away. In fact, the biggest meatpacker in the country is JBS Swift, and it's a Brazilian company. Their interest in keeping a vibrant rural economy in, in uh, Colorado or Nebraska is obviously very limited. 
what ends up happening is that the profits, the earnings, get sucked away, vacuumed out of rural communities, and instead you have a much less vibrant economic situation for rural areas. We totally agree with that. We think that having more competition will benefit farmers, will benefit rural economies, provide more jobs in rural America, and really strengthen the kind of rural bonds that are necessary to keep keep these communities really active. Mm-hmm. You know, from a personal experience, I know when I go to my farmer's market, I prefer to buy organic meat because organic meat is the only label that ensures me that the animal has not been fed genetically modified grain. And I know that my producer is in a real bind because he can't find a processing facility to handle his meat and as, as well as his poultry. I mean, you just can't get an organic poultry a bird at my market. And so putting these big laws into everyday, into the everyday reality is, is quite evident to me. By influencing Gypsa, would that maybe help bring back some of the smaller meat processing facilities too? Yes, we, we really believe that uh, improving competition in livestock markets will make it more possible for more farmers to deliver livestock to smaller facilities where they can get access to the market. Obviously, there's a tremendous dearth of small slaughterhouses across the country. And for small producers that are producing kind of niche products like organic or free-range, it's often impossible for them to get into slaughterhouses. And this is because of the stranglehold the big companies have by having a more competitive marketplace. And these new GYPSA rules will help move in that direction, along with the new interstate rules on shipping small slaughter facilities across state lines. These will really help kind of rejuvenate competition, and we think will help bring back more small slaughter facilities so that farmers can get into the marketplace, that there is more capacity out there for farmers to sell their livestock and for consumers to get access to the kinds of meat products that they're looking for. I think this would do so much for rural development, rural community development. It would be tremendous. Now, you mentioned the June 22nd call-in day to the White House. Do you have a phone number? Uh, We have material on our website that will explain how people can get in touch uh, with the White House and how they can host a call-in day on their own with their friends and reach out to really mobilize to encourage the president to keep his campaign pledge to restore uh, competition to livestock markets. It's all on our website at www.foodandwaterwatch.org. And I'll make sure to post that on the radio's uh, website as well. One more question, Patrick. Would it also be beneficial for all of us to contact our representatives and senators, or is this really just a targeting for the president? Well, right now, uh, the House is trying to prevent USDA from doing this. So contacting your, your representatives and senators and urging them to let USDA finalize the livestock rules, the GYPSA rules, uh, without interference from the appropriations process is something that everyone should do as well. Terrific. Okay, so listeners, this is very important for the quality of food on our plate. It all boils down to public policy. We have been speaking with Patrick Woodall. He is a research director and senior policy advocate for Food and Water Watch, and this is his area of expertise. I want to thank you, Patrick, so much for being with me today. Uh, Listeners, thank you for joining us. Please take action. Join us. And it's easy. I've been to the Food and Water Watch website. It is a terrific consumer advocacy site. 
And I know that when you go to that website, it might, you might feel sort of confused in making calls to senators and representatives, but Food and Water Watch provides you with the history and the ask, so it's very easy to do. So once again, Patrick, thank you so much for being with me today. It's been great to be here. Thank you, Melinda. And listeners, thank you for joining us. Quick reminder that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri.